This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. Children are at a heightened risk for sexual violence. Nearly 70% of all reported sexual assaults occur to children ages 17 and under. 12.3% of women were aged 10 or younger at the time of their first rape or victimization, and 30% of women were between the ages of 11 and 17. About 93% of children who are victims of sexual abuse know their abuser. The younger the victim, the more likely it is that the abuser is a family member. Of those molesting a child under 6, 50% were family members and family members also accounted for 23% of those abusing children ages 12 to 17. On March 11, 1989, a 14-year-old teenager went missing after accusing her adoptive father of molesting her. For 30 years, she was dismissed as a runaway, until 2019, when her adoptive father was charged in relation to another murder, and the truth finally came out. This is the story of Andrea Bowman. Andrea Michelle Bowman was born on June 23, 1974, in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the United States. Alexis Miranda Badger at birth, her biological mother, Kathy, gave her up for adoption at five months old, and she was subsequently adopted and raised by Brenda and Dennis Bowman from the time she was 21 months old. The family lived for a time in Virginia before settling in Michigan. I'm not sure the timing or the extent of their moves, but at the time of Andrea's disappearance, the family was living in a town called Holland in Michigan, and after her disappearance, they moved about 15 minutes away to Hamilton. But Andrea is often labeled as the missing Hamilton teen in news stories. Holland is a city in Michigan that is situated near the eastern shore of Lake Michigan, with a population of 33,051 as of 2010. It is the largest city in that region, according to Wikipedia. Hamilton, by comparison, is listed as an unincorporated community under the umbrella of Heath Township, which has a population of just 3,317. So to me, it appears right off the bat that the family relocated to a more secluded area following the disappearance of Andrea, for whatever reason, away from prying eyes, maybe they'd already been planning a move, housing prices, whatever the reason. Michigan, for those that don't know, is a state in the upper Midwestern area of the U.S., 
and it is divided into the Upper Peninsula, which borders Wisconsin to its west, and Ontario, Canada to its east. The Lower Peninsula borders Indiana and Ohio to its south, and again Ontario to its east. Michigan also borders four of the Great Lakes, including Lake Superior to its north, Lake Huron and Lake Erie to its east, and Lake Michigan to its west, which also shares a border with Illinois. According to Andrea's adoptive mother, Brenda, she was described as a, quote, difficult child, rebellious, who had trouble finishing her homework, end quote. Sadly, I can't find much about her other than her, quote, troubled behavior. I'll go into what some students witnessed and such, but... There is not much describing her interests or her as a person, and I know this is usually common in the stories I discuss, but I often can find at least something about their loved ones speaking nicely of them, even if it's just a small quote. But even her friends from that time just referenced events in her life or conversations, and I just find that particularly sad, especially for a 14-year-old girl. Fifteen months before she went missing, Brenda gave birth to a daughter named Vanessa. It is reported that Andrea became a caregiver to the baby. It's unclear if she was initiating taking care of the infant out of fear for her well-being, or if her parents put her to work to lessen their load. Perhaps it was a bit of both. But friends say she was anxious about being away from Vanessa while at school, and worried about her often. She even kept a photo of the baby in her school books. Then, just four months prior to Andrea's disappearance, she had gone over to a friend's house after school one day, but when it was time to leave, she became fearful, and that's when she confided that she was being molested by her adoptive father, Dennis. She also claimed that Brenda knew, but did nothing. The next day, she was brought into the office at school, but sadly, these allegations were brushed aside, and she was returned to her parents' custody with no further investigation. Brenda would later state, when confronted by Andrea, that she had told her, quote, That's a lie, and you know it, end quote. It turns out that Andrea had confided in a few people about her father's sexual abuse, but no one either believed it or wanted to get involved. There were other allegations of physical abuse towards Andrea from both Brenda and Dennis, including starving and beating her, but these are from friends at the time and weren't properly documented with authorities, to my knowledge. I'm not sure if the day of Andrea's disappearance she had attended school or was absent. Her father claimed to have come home from his job as a wood machinist that day, to find $100 missing and noticed some of Andrea's belongings missing and that she was gone. He called around to some of her friends to see if she was there, but Brenda took over and actively tried to find her daughter. Brenda also revised the missing amount to $150, which allowed police to issue a warrant for Andrea's theft. Months went by and many tips and sightings poured in but none were successful in locating Andrea. She was labeled simply a runaway, and her case went cold. Many locals theorized she had run off to find her birth mother, 
or had gotten pregnant and left with a boy. There were also many whispers about the alleged abuse, and most assumed she had just had enough and got out. My biggest anger towards this assumption of her just running away is that most 14-year-olds with hundred some odd dollars to their names can't just willingly disappear forever with no trace. She likely would have contacted someone at some point or at the very least been spotted somewhere. It's no easy feat to run away and provide for yourself. And I know some do and survive, but it just feels like a cop-out to just assume and not even consider foul play, especially considering her accusations. Many runaway kids and teens also end up in sex trafficking or being abducted, so there should always be some concern, even in true runaway cases. But further to that, she was obsessed with Vanessa and so concerned for her safety, and everyone knew that. So why would she suddenly just disappear, never to be seen from again, and leave Vanessa in the very home she was fearful of? It just doesn't make sense. In 1993, Andrea's photograph was used in the music video for Soul Asylum's song, Runaway Train. I hadn't realized, but apparently there were multiple versions of the video, and they differed based on regions, and highlighted numerous runaways or missing teens from all across the U.S. The video is apparently responsible for finding more than 24 missing kids. So how did the case of missing 14-year-old Andrea get solved? All I can say is buckle up. This is quite an interesting story. And it's so intertwined that if everything hadn't lined up just so, I don't think this case would have ever been solved. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart. And I hope through these stories, we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is a 100% one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. And as always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of December 2021 is Redwood Shelter, which is a local Toronto shelter that provides a safe haven for women and children experiencing domestic violence. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. Firstly, let's discuss Andrea's birth mother, Kathy Tricanian. At just 14 years old herself, Kathy ran away from her neglected home life. She was one of six children her mother had with three different men, 
and her stepfather was in the Navy, which moved the family around a great deal. Her mother was overwhelmed taking care of the children, while her stepfather was away for extended durations, and as such, Kathy was lost in the chaos. At 10 years old, she was molested, and at 12, she was raped, which led her to plan her escape. She boarded a bus and left to New Orleans, where she met a group of kids that formed a community and helped each other out. It's there she met an older boy named Randy Badger, and the two got married. Because she was underage, they had to go to South Carolina and have her parents sign off on the marriage to make it legal. Her parents didn't want to be responsible for her anymore and gladly signed. Less than a year later, she was pregnant and Kathy gave birth to baby Alexis. Not all was idyllic though, and Randy enjoyed partying and cheating with other women. Kathy came home one night after work to find Randy with another woman and Alexis in a room crying by herself. So Kathy packed up and left Randy and New Orleans. She headed back to Virginia where her family lived with her baby, hoping for some help. Instead, her mother convinced her she wouldn't be able to take care of her baby. And so at five months old, Kathy decided to give up her daughter for adoption. All she wanted was for her daughter to have a better life than she could provide. Kathy ended up leaving her home again, and she did create a better life for herself, going to school, becoming a nurse, and remarrying, although she never had any more children. But in April of 2010, a letter arrived to Kathy from a social worker asking for her to provide a DNA sample to confirm if remains they found in Wisconsin were in fact those of Alexis. The letter explained that she had run away in 1989, but gave no more information into the case. Kathy did submit her DNA, but she was devastated that her daughter likely hadn't grown up to have a full life and was potentially deceased. She also wanted more information, and that's when she started investigating. She found missing persons reports and articles and found the name Andrea Bowman, realizing that was likely her daughter, Alexis. She also set up a Facebook page and a classmates.com page in hopes of connecting to Andrea's old friends and finding out more about what happened to her daughter. This is how she met a man named Carl Koppelman. Once an accountant, Carl had become a primary caregiver to his sick mother and had begun investigating cold cases as a sort of hobby. At the time, J.C. Duggard had recently been recovered after missing for 18 years, and he had become active in trying to help other missing persons be identified. He even ended up using drawing software to help create images of what missing and unidentified deceased persons might look like and search for similarities. That's when he came across the unidentified body found in Wisconsin in the database and made a connection that it could possibly be that of Andrea. And so investigators found Kathy and requested her DNA, as that was the only way to confirm. Sadly, that body was not Andrea's and was actually another young woman 
who had been severely abused by the woman she worked for and eventually murdered and disposed of in a cornfield. Another utterly tragic and disgusting case. By the time it was determined the body did not belong to Andrea, Kathy and Carl had already been investigating for years, trying to gather evidence of who was responsible for Andrea's death. Their main suspect was almost instantly Dennis Bowman. A retired Michigan detective named Pat O'Reilly had told Kathy early on, quote, they botched this case from the beginning, end quote and said they should look at Dennis. This is where, I, again, I get very angry that she was brushed aside as just a runaway kid. Because Dennis Bowman had been convicted and been in prison for attempting to abduct a woman. A 19-year-old woman was riding her bike one morning, and a man forced her off the road with his motorcycle. He then tried to get her to walk into the woods by threatening her with a gun. He shot near her twice in an attempt to scare her and to get her walking, but she didn't move, and instead a car drove by, and when he looked up at it, she ran. He let her go, but the woman went to police, and later that same day, Dennis was identified. At the time, Andrea was about six years old, and Dennis was sentenced to five to ten years in prison, convicted with the, quote, intent to commit criminal sexual conduct, end quote. He was also given a psychological evaluation where he was deemed a threat to women, yet he only served five years and was released. Brenda, his wife, stood by him. And there's more. He was also caught breaking into a woman's home in 1998, after the woman reported numerous break-ins to police. He initially lied and was released, but upon further investigation, they found a duffel bag on his property containing lingerie belonging to the woman, a black sweatshirt, a mask, and a shotgun. He again was convicted, but I'm not sure of what he was sentenced to for that conviction. And no, I'm still not done. He was also suspected to be involved in a case where a six-year-old girl was abducted, taken into the woods, tied up, and stripped. But thankfully, the perpetrator got scared off by some dogs barking before the sexual assault took place. That girl is now a woman, and Melissa helped Kathy and Carl in their investigation after identifying Dennis as the man who abducted her. Unfortunately, he has not confirmed his involvement, and the statute of limitations has elapsed on her crime. And there's even more. Dennis is suspected to be involved in numerous crimes of sexual assault and child molestation, with the actual number being unknown. Scarier still is that he taught Sunday school to kindergartners long after Andrea went missing. And how he was even able to submit character witness statements from people at the church, along with the counselor from his sex offender group treatment, it's just mind-boggling. How is a sex offender allowed to teach Sunday school? 
how did no one catch that or do anything about that? Ultimately, it would be yet another case, that of 25-year-old Kathleen Doyle, that finally became Dennis's undoing. A newlywed, Kathleen's husband was deployed at the time his wife was murdered. Her body was found stripped, tied up, gagged, raped, strangled, and then stabbed in her home in Virginia. Her case went unsolved for nearly 30 years until DNA linked the semen found at her crime scene to that of Dennis Bowman. It was ultimately luck as they had begun using genetic genealogy to find suspects. And if you want more information on this type of science, I talked about it a little bit more in the episode number five, the story of Christine Jessup. Most notably, genetic genealogy was used to find the identity of the Golden State Killer. In this case, Dennis Bowman was entered as a suspect, but Michigan authorities actually had his DNA and when approached, allowed it to be entered for testing. Apparently, the Bowmans had gone to complain to police about Kathy's harassment of them because at that time she was extremely vocal that Dennis was responsible for her daughter's murder. And when he left behind a water bottle, detectives took it for DNA analysis. And that's how 31 years after the murder of Kathleen Doyle, Dennis Bowman was finally convicted for his crimes. He pled guilty to the charges and was sentenced to two life sentences plus 20 years. He also confessed to another crime in which he broke into a woman's home, tied her up, gagged, and raped her, eerily similar to Kathleen Doyle's crime. Thankfully, she lived, but again, the statute of limitations had expired and he cannot be charged. So what about Andrea? Kathy and her fellow crime sleuths believed Andrea's body to be on the Bowman family property. In fact, Kathy figured out exactly where she thought it was. And after being detained, Dennis finally admitted to killing Andrea. He still hasn't admitted to molesting her or abusing her, but he claims an argument occurred in which he slapped Andrea and she fell and broke her neck. This story he told to Brenda from jail, and he also told her where to find the body, which she then reiterated to police. In February of 2020, police dug up the remains of Andrea Bowman in the backyard of the Bowman's Hamilton, Michigan home. And if you're wondering, yes, Andrea went missing while living in Holland. But Dennis placed her in some sort of cylinder container and moved her body to the new house once the purchase was finalized. In another disturbing fact, Dennis actually dismembered her body as well. There was also apparently a trash bag with her remains, but it was so deteriorated I don't have any reports of what was in it. Previously, both Brenda and Vanessa supported Dennis and even fought with Kathy at an event once after she had badmouthed him and made accusations. But following all the details coming to light, 
Brenda stated she really believed Andrea had run away all that time and that she had believed her husband, that she took her wedding vows seriously and as such had forgiven him for his criminal activities. Brenda ultimately testified at his trial against him, but I really doubt that she had no idea. I think she knew something but chose to bury her head in the sand. Denial can be deep, and it can skew our reality. I definitely believe Dennis must be responsible for more crimes, and considering he murdered Andrea and that she accused him of sexual assault, I have no doubts that he likely assaulted both children and women alike, and that age wasn't his deciding factor. Let me know your thoughts on this case. You can reach out on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast, or on my Facebook discussion group. Kathy is relieved that after all these years and all her efforts, her daughter's murderer will be brought to justice finally. But it's still heartbreaking that the better life she so desperately wanted to give her daughter ended in such tragedy. She's now petitioning the courts to allow her to bury Andrea's remains under her birth name, Alexis Badger, instead of her tombstone bearing the surname of the man who murdered her. Thank you for listening to the story of Andrea Bowman. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.